This morning, we continue our studies in the book of Jeremiah. We are in chapter 10. We're going to look at verses 1 through 16. That's our text this morning. Open your Bible or navigate on your tablet or phone to Jeremiah 10. You can, we're a uh, technology-friendly church. If you want to have your phone on, your tablet open, that's fine. You might want to put it on mute, though, uh, so you don't get made fun of when it rings. Jeremiah 10, 1 through 16. The topic, Jeremiah shows the futility of apostate Judah worshiping dead idols adorned by their metalsmiths. And so the title of our message, Metallic Apostate. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, your word, so wonderful, Lord. Uh, I pray that you would remind us this morning that uh, though it appeals to our intellect, though there's much to learn, and though we want to learn, and gain knowledge, Lord, that more uh, powerfully, more prominently, we want you to speak directly to our hearts about those things that uh, endear you to us. Your grace, your mercy, your forgiveness, your acceptance. We would understand that your thoughts towards us are thoughts to give us an expected end to finish the work that you've begun in us. Lord, if there are people here men, women, even children who don't know you, they've not opened their heart to receive the forgiveness of sins and accepted you as their savior. Pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would be convicting them of sin and of righteousness and of the judgment to come and that they would understand that your uh, love for them, Lord, knows no bounds, that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die for them and to rise from the dead so that they could live forever with you, so that they could have eternal life abundantly now and forever. Guide us through this text, Lord. Speak to our hearts those things that are most needful. We pray in Jesus' name and those who agreed said, amen. What kind of a terrible father would name his son Sue only to abandon him? That's the psychosocial dilemma Johnny Cash explored in his 1969 recording, A Boy Named Sue. How many of you are familiar with that record? I know you sing it every day. (laughs) After suffering ridicule and harassment everywhere he goes, Sue eventually locates his father at a Gatlinburg, Texas tavern. He confronts him by saying, my name is Sue. How do you do? Now you're going to die. The result is a vicious brawl that spills outdoors into a muddy street. After the two have beaten each other almost senseless, Sue's father explains to him that the name was given for his own good as an act of love. Because Sue's father knew that he would not be there for his son, he gave him the name to make sure that he grew up strong. Sue forgives his father and they reconcile. With his lesson learned, Sue closes the song with a promise to name his son Bill or George or anything but Sue because he still hates the name. Now, 6th century Judah would be overrun by the armies of King Nebuchadnezzar. The Jews would be exiled to Babylon for 70 years, seven decades. Why would a loving heavenly father treat his sons and daughters that way? It was for their own good as an act of love. We rarely consider all the good that came out of the Babylonian exile. For sure, by its end, the Jews repented of their sins and they returned in their hearts to the Lord, but there were several other significant spiritual benefits. Number one, they became purely monotheistic. 
giving up idolatry completely. Most historians will point out that after Babylon, the Jews never were interested in idolatry again. They it got, got it out of their national system as it was. Second, they became a separated people who did not want to become like their neighbors ever again. It was during this period of time that the Pharisee movement uh, started. Now, we think of Pharisees in the time of Jesus Christ as being hypocrites and self-righteous, and they were. But the beginnings of the Pharisee movement were good, they were holy, it was a desire to remain separate from the surrounding nations, which was God's desire all along. And then third, during this time, during this captivity, God placed a longing in their hearts for the coming of their Messiah. And so I would say those are three tremendous benefits to those 70 years in captivity. The benefits of being in Babylon got me thinking about our own situation as believers in the 21st century. In one of his letters, the Apostle Peter greeted his readers from Babylon. He may have been in Babylon, but most commentators think he was referring to the world in general as Babylon in a figurative sense. By that reasoning, anywhere you and I are as Christians is Babylon. And anywhere you are is a place where your loving Heavenly Father is doing a work in you. I'm going to approach this text as if we are exiles in Babylon, learning an important lesson about our Father in Heaven. And I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, you see how futile it is to make a God. And number two, you see how faithful God is to make a man. Let's take a look in verses one through 10 at the futility of men making gods. Since the beginning of recorded history, which is defined by the invention of writing by the Sumerians around 6,000 years ago, historians have cataloged over 3,700 supernatural beings of which 2,870 are considered gods. Those numbers are probably a very conservative estimate because we really have no accurate information before 4000 BC. What we can say for sure is that mankind loves to make gods. We are prone to idolatry. Although stone and wooden idols are one representation of a god and one form of idolatry, a person does not need to bow down before them to be an idolater. For example, covetousness is said to be idolatry in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, and in 1 Timothy 6.10, we're told that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And so from the pulpit, you've heard many times over the years, if you're a Christian, that anybody or anything can be or become an idol in your life. Whether you bow down to it as a god or worship it in the classic sense, if it takes the place that God rightfully holds in your life, then it's an idol. Whether it's represented by some physical object or not, idolatry is still practiced as mankind puts power or pleasure or possessions in the place of God in their lives. Now, interesting, our text doesn't really rebuke you for idolatry. It takes a different approach altogether. It is a satire about idolatry. It shows you the stupidity of 
being an idol worshiper. And so Jeremiah begins in verse one and he says, hear the word which the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, do not learn the way of the Gentiles. Do not be dismayed at the signs of the heaven, for the Gentiles are dismayed at them. Think of this as a warning to the Jews, something they should remember when they find themselves captive in Babylon. They're not there yet. Jeremiah is going to minister to them for 40 years. We don't know when this message was given because they aren't necessarily in chronological order. But it's a warning for the future. He says, when you're in Babylon, don't learn the way of the Gentiles and don't be dismayed at the signs of the heaven. Now, it's interesting because one of the things Babylon was noted for, one of her ways, was astrology, the signs of heaven. They were pretty good at it or at least they were renowned for it. The magi who followed the star that led them to Jesus were Babylonian astrologers. And so this was the way of Babylon. One reason to not learn the way of Babylon or of Gentiles, meaning non-believers in general, is that regardless their much knowledge, they are left dismayed. Now that word, one of its meanings is terrified. And it's interesting, I was thinking about this, most of the explanations of the universe that philosophers and scientists have suggested are simply terrifying if you really stop and think about them. They're terrifying. Remove or ignore God, go with one of these philosophies or uh, sort of neutral science positions and you're going to be terrified at the result because there's no one in control, there's no reason for anything, it's all survival of the fittest at best. That's the best thing that you can say about a universe without God. Everybody's freaked out right now about the signs in the heavens with regard to the Mayan calendar. The Mayans, man, pretty good mathematicians and they had their pretty accurate calendar and it ends this year, maybe because now archaeologists think that they've dug a little farther and they think they found page 17 of their calendar or whatever it is. So we don't know for sure, but people are freaked out. Now, whether anybody is actually terrified, I think people are a little bit freaked out. This year, 2012, there's a lot of possible events that could mean the end of the world. If you watch educational television, Discovery Channel or whatever, uh, obviously they're doing it for ratings, it's sensationalism, but if you are honest about it and you say, okay, let's say there is no God, what if this stuff is true? What if the planet Nibura is gonna hit the earth? What if an asteroid is on its way? If the universe is all random, sooner or later, we're gonna go the way of the dinosaur. There's no, it's terrifying, is it not? Then there's all these people who are interested in aliens. SETI and all these people talking, you know, sending stuff out into space to try and talk to aliens and make contact with alien life. Stephen Hawking, the renowned physicist, keeps telling people to not be doing that. And his reasoning is that if you just look at the, the history of our own planet, people who are more powerful always conquered people who were less powerful. And in the case of the aliens, he's saying, let them pass by. Because if we can contact them, and if they can come here, they're superior and they're gonna eat us, basically, is what he says. And so that to me, that's terrifying. Now we have this idea that we're gonna you know, have a Star Trek kind of a universe 
where we all get along in the United Federation of Planets, but even in Star Trek, there's always some crazy race that's trying to blow up the galaxy, come through the wormhole and all of that. And see, we laugh and we joke and we think, oh, this is great entertainment, but if there is no God, if there is no purpose, if there is no meaning, that wormhole could be opening right now and you and I are gonna get swallowed and go into nothingness. It's terrifying. And so... God here, I mean, in a, in a very understated way, says, don't learn the way of the Gentiles because in the end, they are all terrified. The famous Joseph Conrad novel that's been remade into umpteen movies with different modern themes, uh, Heart of Darkness, the big line in that is, is when, when Kurtz, the hero, is dying, or the anti-hero, his assessment of life and the universe are two words, the horror. That's all he says, the horror, the horror. And it's an existential kind of a reality. And you study it in school and you think, wow, that's fantastic. No, it's not, it's horrible. People facing their last moment without God and realizing they're on the precipice of eternity, falling over on the other side, it's terrifying. And so don't learn the way of the Gentiles. Without God, there can be no peace, not with other men, not within your heart. Dismayed is the nicest way we could state all of that, and it's really a fantastic understatement. Now, even though exiled, the individual Jew would know that his or her life had meaning and purpose. They would know that there was a flow of history and that God was providentially overseeing it to bring about his promised end. The Bible provides the only worldview that makes perfect sense and that can satisfy the longings of our heart for answers to life's most difficult and perplexing questions and circumstances. No other worldview can do that. Verse three, for the customs of the people are futile. For one cuts a tree from a forest, the work of the hands of the workman with the ax. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with nails and hammers so that it will not topple. They're upright like a palm tree and they cannot speak. They must be carried because they can't go by themselves. Do not be afraid of them for they cannot do evil nor can they do any good. Men fashion physical objects to represent their gods. It's stupid. First of all, it's made by a man. If you can make your own god then you are by definition more powerful than he is. I, I think I'll make God today. And so you get a piece of wood and you fashion it and it fits into this category. It doesn't talk, it doesn't move, it has to be propped up, you have to hammer it into the ground. It can't help you. Beyond that, it's ugly and needs to be decorated. It needs to be uh, you know, painted or have some kind of an overlay. It's stupid. Now, it's hard for us to see our idolatry when we are covetous of power or pleasure or possessions. We're not too many of us actually worshiping objects, not openly. 
We don't literally bow down before idols and worship them, but these two are represented by objects we make. Generally speaking, and this is just a generality because we, we don't believe or teach that Christianity is communal or communistic. By that I mean we don't all have to live at the same level of, of wealth or poverty. Uh, God blesses some with more and blesses others with less. Uh, and, and so what I'm gonna say next has nothing to do with status or those kinds of things, but I think in general, you'll understand where I'm going. Generally speaking, in our society, the wealthy represent their wealth with objects that are more expensive and more elaborate in order to communicate their status. It might be a house that's bigger and better and ostentatious. It might be a vehicle that everyone knows costs a lot more money. But I think there's a sense in which, and sometimes when you see somebody who's living a very frugal lifestyle and you find out that they're a millionaire, you think, well, what's wrong with that guy? Why doesn't he buy this or that or the other thing that he can afford? And so we have this idea, at least, whether we worship these things or not, we have an idea that objects really do represent things. They really do represent power and possessions and pleasure. In thinking about this, in, you know, in you know, the sense of a, a metalsmith going out and getting a piece of wood and then carving it and then adorning it with metal and all that, uh, it, it hit me that it doesn't matter how beautiful some representation is, it's all made from the same commonplace materials. It's just decorated better by the metalsmith. While I agree that a Ferrari is an amazing automobile, it is essentially no different than my Scion XB. Is it? No. I agree that it's got amazing Italian engineering and the lines are beautiful and it costs more to build and all that, but it's still, it's made of metal, some kind of metal. It has a frame, a motor. I mean, yeah, sure, it's better, but in what sense? The metalsmith came along and he said, I'm gonna make this more beautiful, more powerful, more everything, so that people who are into wealth and power and all of these things can have a representation of that as they drive along. Still, one is a status symbol, the Ferrari communicating that, while the other is a clown car. <laughs> I tell you what, when I drive up in my Scion, nobody's afraid. <laughs> Nobody thinks, wow, this guy really has it together. But if I drove up in a Ferrari, well, you would think, well, you'd stop tithing, first of all, but <laughs> next, you would think. But you would, you think things. We can't help it, it's the way we're built. Sometimes we shouldn't think that way. It doesn't matter, if you drive a Cadillac, I don't care. If you drive a, a, you know, a, a 20-year-old car, we shouldn't care. But the things we do, they do represent something about what we're trying to say. And that's all I'm getting at. Now, verse seven, who would not fear you, O king of the nations? For this is your rightful due. For among all the wise men of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. The Jews in the midst of all that idolatry in Babylon would have a relationship with the king of the nations. They would understand his rightful due was to be feared, to be reverenced. Though held in exile, the Jews would remain at the center of God's plan for the ages. You could successfully argue 
that there would not have been a Babylonian empire at all unless God had needed a nation to discipline his wandering children. Babylon is a, a, it's a blip on the historic radar. And I guess, well, back, let me back up a minute. When I was in school 100 years ago, one-room schoolhouse, no, it's not that, two rooms. But anyway, uh, we studied history, very little about Israel when you study history. It's a tiny nation the size of Rhode Island. In fact, for a long time, it wasn't even a nation, right? Till 1948, it was just wandering peoples all over the earth that seemed to cause a lot of trouble wherever they went, or at least trouble followed them. And so you study Egypt and Assyria and Babylon and Medo-Persia and Greece and Rome, world-ruling empires, none of them make any sense unless you look at the nation of Israel and how God wanted to keep his promises to Abraham to bring them to the end of history as a people that love him and know him as the apple of his eye. It's, it's, all, it's all just excess nations because he is the king of nations. So we have a very different perspective than God does. Verse eight. They are altogether dull-hearted and foolish. A wooden isle is a worthless doctrine. Silver is beaten into plates. It is brought from Tarshish and gold from Euphaz. The work of the craftsman and of the hands of the metalsmith, blue and purple are their clothing. They are all the work of skillful men. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting king. At his wrath, the earth will tremble and the nations will not be able to endure his indignation. The very finest silver, the very finest gold in the hands of the world's greatest metalsmith, enhanced by the finest fabric woven by the most skillful designers, cannot substitute for a relationship with the living God. My mythical Ferrari could be described that way, but it remains an object that will break down and become obsolete. You can and should enjoy good things. God is not opposed to beauty or art or literature or architecture, any of those things. But read the book of Ecclesiastes to understand that all of those things, everything is vanity and vexation of spirit if pursued apart from God. In one part, in one point, Jesus says, what would it be if you would gain the whole world? And it's, a, it's quite an exaggeration. You're not Bill Gates. You're not just enormously wealthy. You're the person that owns everything and everybody in the entire world. And Jesus says, what would it be if you were that person but in the end lost your soul? Because there's something you and I are born with. In Ecclesiastes, it's it's mentioned. It's a, a wonderful phrase that I love, eternity in their hearts. All human beings are born with eternity in their hearts. Sometimes you've heard it uh, described as a void or an empty spot or a God-shaped box or any, but it's true. There is, there is something about being a human being that longs for a relationship with the creator, with God, a personal relationship that was lost in the Garden of Eden. And even if you're Solomon and you can, you can be that person in one sense or as close to being that person as anyone ever has been and you can experience everything that the world has to offer both in, in moral uh, you know, uh, settings and in immoral settings and the result of it is, he says, vanity, emptiness and vexation of spirit because none of it could fill the void 
that only a relationship with God can fill. And he came to that conclusion and he said, guys, gals, you don't need to go through that kind of sadness, that kind of loneliness, that kind of grief, that kind of whatever. I've done it for you. Believe me, you need to know the living God. And the wise will take that to heart. I said earlier, this isn't really a rebuke for idolatry. It's a revelation of how dumb it is to be drawn away by the things of the world. Look at a non-believer and what he or she idolizes, and you know what you see? Dumb and dumber. Because what they idolize is dumb. And if you idolize something that's dumb, what does that make you? Dumber. And I'm not saying that in a, a, you know, I don't think you should go up to your non-believing friends and say, hey, dumb and dumber. My pastor said, you're an idiot. No, don't do that. But I think philosophically, you understand what I'm saying. If I worship something I created or some object that's going to be destroyed or cease to exist that can't satisfy me, I'm dumber than that dumb thing. And that's the point that these verses are making, that all the while there is a living God who made you and loves you and wants to have a relationship with you. And now you see in the remaining verses how faithful God is to make a man. The Jews would be exiled. They'd be held captive. It looked as though Babylon had all the power, did it not? I mean, from a purely, uh, you know, human perspective, if a nation comes in and conquers another nation, who's the more powerful nation? Who's the more important nation? Usually the conqueror, but that's absolutely false in this case. My favorite illustration for this kind of thing so that we would understand it on a personal level, not just on a national level, is in the book of Acts, where the Ethiopian eunuch, the treasurer of Ethiopia, he's in Jerusalem, he's got a big caravan with him, he's seeking the Lord. He has eternity in his heart, he's seeking the Lord, he doesn't find the Lord in Judaism. The Jewish leaders had no real help for him. I'm sure they rolled out the red carpet for him and treated him like a king, and so he's on his way back to Ethiopia carried along on this beer and this big caravan. All the wealth, all the power, all the authority of his office representing the nation of Ethiopia. And then along the side of the road is an itinerant minister by the name of Philip. He left a successful revival, got kicked out of there by God, and he's sitting by the side of the road not knowing what he's doing. He's essentially a homeless person at that point. He's sitting by the side of the road and this caravan comes by. Probably no one taking any notice of him except the Holy Spirit who whispers to him, go and attach yourself to that caravan. And as he walks along, he apparently hears the Ethiopian reading a passage in Isaiah. And he asks him, do you know what you're reading? And the Ethiopian surprisingly says, how can I know what I'm reading unless somebody explains it to me? And he begins to witness to him and share with him from that very passage who Jesus Christ is. And that guy gets saved so much so that he stops his caravan and in front of all of his servants, he gets out and he has Philip baptize him. And when he comes up out of the water, Philip is gone. God raptured him to another city. And so who had the power? Who had the wealth? Who had the authority in that story, really? Philip did. The itinerant homeless minister sitting by the side of the road had real wealth and real power and real authority that could change a man's life forever and eternity. 
That's power. When you tell somebody that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead and that he will forgive their sins and give them eternal life, that's a treasure worth sharing. That's power. That's authority. I mean, if you're a Christian, you know what I'm talking about. You don't say, well, you know, I think if you, I think if you become a Christian, maybe you're going to go to heaven someday. And I, I don't know, probably most of your sins will be free. Why don't you give this a try? It's better than what you're doing now. No, you, you have an absolute authority. Even if you're shy about sharing Christ, you know that when you share Christ, you're sharing the truth with authority, all the authority of the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. And so we need to quit being fooled by the world. We need to quit looking at things, especially in our own lives, and see just earthly, temporal things. We are eternal beings, and God is working in us and on us and through us to mold and shape us into the image of something awesome and wonderful. Verse 11, thus you shall say to them, the gods that have not made the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and under these heavens. Do you remember when it was popular for Christians to say, it's all going to burn? I haven't said that or heard that in a while. It means that everything the world has to offer is going one day to be burned away. It will be gone. And that's our message to those who, though they seem wealthy and powerful, are really dismayed or will be at the moment of death because there is eternity in their hearts and they cannot be satisfied by anything other than God. Verse 12, he has made the earth by his power. He has established the world by his wisdom. He has stretched out the heavens at his discretion. When he utters his voice, there is a multitude of waters in the heavens and he causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain. He brings the wind out of its treasuries. Theologians debate the extent to which you can know God through his creation. But one thing is clear, you can know there is a God And knowing that much, you can begin to seek him. He is promised to be found by those who do. Read the creation account in Genesis, and you come to one great conclusion. God created the universe in which we live in order to have an environment within which to make man in his image. If the creation account by itself isn't enough, or you think, well, Gene, I don't really see that fully developed there, then go to the end of the Bible to the book of the Revelation, it's also mentioned by Peter in his second epistle, where the Bible says, okay, this universe, God's gonna be through with it. He's gonna fold it up like a garment, he's gonna burn it up and make a new heaven and a new earth, but what will last? What will carry over? You and I will carry over. God created the universe so that he could make man in his image so that you and I could know God He didn't need us. He's not made better by us. We don't add anything to God, but because God is love, he made us to love us so that we could return that love and have an eternity of fellowship with him. Verse 14, everyone is dull-hearted without knowledge. Every metalsmith is put to shame by an image, for his molded image is falsehood, and there is no breath in them. They are futile, a work of errors. In the time of their punishment, they shall perish. While men are trying to fashion gods, God is at work making men. God's greatest work is the making of a man or a woman. 
If you are a Christian, you're a new creature in Jesus Christ. Salvation is only the beginning, though, of what God has planned. 1 Corinthians 2.9 reads like this, but as it is written, eye has not seen nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. The psalmist declared, I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. You and I are predestinated to be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. We are God's great workmanship, and he who began this good work, he's promised to complete it. Verse 16, the portion of Jacob is not like them, for he is the maker of all things, and Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. The Lord of hosts is his name. God considers himself in this verse the portion of Jacob. Having redeemed the Jews, God was their portion. He belonged to them by love and by covenant. The maker of all things was even in Babylon working out the promised inheritance of Israel. He was the Lord of hosts, meaning at any moment, a heavenly host could overthrow Babylon and free the Jews. And so if you're a Jew in Babylonian exile, you know that at any moment, God could send even one angel, but he has a host of them, and your entire situation would be changed. You know, I get frustrated. I, I don't know if you do, but I get frustrated sometimes realizing that God could change my circumstances in the twinkling of an eye. I'm suffering, I have a disease, uh, there's some adversity in my life, psychologically, emotionally, whatever it might be, a trial, a tribulation. I know that God could change it in an instant. He's the Lord of heaven, the, the Lord of hosts. And then he doesn't. And it bothers me, it frustrates me. Because I can't see the purpose, I can't see the end, I don't want to suffer. I don't want to see others suffer. But God says, no, I'm the Lord of hosts. I can do that. But if I don't do that, I'll tell you what I am doing, says the Lord. I'm working on you. I'm molding you. I'm shaping you. These Jews, they'd gone pretty far afield. They needed to be exiled to Babylon for 70 years to have all of those benefits come into their lives so that they could turn away from the world and back to God, so they could get idolatry out of their system, so that they could long for the coming of their Messiah, so that they could live a separated life. And so when I, instead of getting frustrated that God isn't answering my prayer, removing my trial, getting me into a better place, I am to receive the fact that God has designed where I'm at to make me like Jesus Christ. And in the few years that I have, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 years, they are a drop in the bucket when compared to eternity and all of my tears will be gone and all of my sorrow will be behind me and I will see the plan of God like the front side of the tapestry, not the back side. It won't be just a bunch of jumbled threads. It will be a perfect representation. It will be how Gene should look like Jesus. It will be how you should look like Jesus. And so why waste our time going after idols or even being disappointed that God won't change our circumstances? It's a waste of time. God is faithful to make you. He requires, however, your cooperation. Between your salvation and your final state, your glorification, there is what is called sanctification, 
the daily molding and shaping of you into the image of Jesus. And so just as a kind of a question to ask if that's true, and since it's true, what kind of clay am I in God's hands? Am I pliable, am I moldable, am I shapeable? Paul the Apostle, he had some kind of a physical malady. It was, you can imagine that it must have been something really severe for Paul to have even worried about it, great Christian that he was. He prayed three times about it, and then the Lord said, don't ask me about this because it's good for you. I'm, I'm the one that brought it because in your weakness, I will be made strong. And then Paul said, all right, I'm down with that. He continued to suffer with it. No, it did, God didn't take it away, whatever it was. It might have been ophthalmalian eye disease. It could have been, it's called the messenger of Satan. It could have been a spiritual attack. Whatever it was, Paul said, if you think it's the best thing for me, who am I to judge that? And so if I find myself in a situation, there's nothing wrong with asking the Lord to change it. Lord, get me out of this, seeking him as a father. But at some point, I have to hear from the Lord maybe say, Gene, you don't understand, this is what I'm doing. This isn't what I'm not doing, this is what I'm doing. I know it's unpleasant, it's not what you would choose, but man, if you would choose, gosh, if I would choose, I'd eat dessert all day. Wouldn't you? Just cheesecake, morning, noon, and night. I could just be at the cheesecake factory all the time. All different kind of cheesecake. When I got tired of cheesecake, I'd move on to funnel cakes or beignets or something like that. Who cares about real food? And so God says, no, I know what you need. This is what you need. And we waste so much of our life in in a place struggling with why is God doing this. I'll tell you why, because he's promised to make you like Jesus Christ. And it's the only way he can do that. I don't know why it's the only way, I've got other ways. I think God could make me more like Jesus Christ if I was perfectly healthy, if I never had to die, if I was raptured instead of resurrected, if our church was 10 million people strong, if, you know, all those kinds of things. I mean, all the things normal people think, if I drove a Ferrari and you didn't care, I mean, that would be my plan. But God says, no, you need to drive a clown car in Hanford. That's how you're gonna become more like Jesus and other things that are more personal where you think, oh Lord, why, why is this happening? There is no why other than God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. He's promised to perform everything that he's promised and he'll do it, amen?